Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back. It is Wednesday, November 9, 2022, and it looks like we have the makings of a very nice day outside. It's a little brisk this morning. My temperature gauge quit working here at the manse, and uh, I was too lazy to walk outside and look at the actual physical one. But the sun is coming up. Um, I don't think it frosted last night. At least it doesn't look like there's a frost. Maybe I'm wrong. I can see uh, the Blue Ridge out of this window. Out of that window, I can see my neighbor Stanley's pasture, and I see a big deer just walking around out there. Again, it's a beautiful day. Um, as a good friend told me, it's a lateral move from Spotswood to heaven. I don't know about all that, but <clears throat> this is a remarkable place to be. I hope that where you live is a remarkable place as well. Um, and I hope that this uh, devotional finds you doing well, whether you're here with us at, well, now it's 7.01 a.m., or maybe you are with us some other time. But I welcome you no matter when it is. And especially I welcome you because we come today to one of my favorite portions of Scripture. And I'm not alone in this, but where we dig into today, y'all, it's it's a lot of people's favorite portion of Scripture, or at least it's one of the most important portions to them. It's one of those portions that is used so many times at funeral services, right? Um, it is referenced so often in preaching, in my preaching as well, not because it's more important than other passages or anything like that, y'all, but instead because of the words, right? Because of the concise nature of what is presented in just a few verses, y'all, oh, it, it's just, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. These are words that we come to today of such comfort that give us such hope, and yet, they are words that yet again point to the exclusivity of Jesus. But in order to understand where we come to today, knowing the context is very important. Not because you can't take this on its own. You know, it, it, you, you really can. However, when you understand the context of Jesus saying what he's saying, it adds such a richness to this. Now, thankfully, we've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so we know what has come just before we were coming to today in John chapter 14, right? And what is that? Well, we know that Jesus is gathered with his disciples there at the Passover feast. We know from chapter 13 that he washed his feet showing his love for them, setting the example for them of what they should be doing. We know that Jesus, beginning in verse 18, begins revealing who it is that's going to betray him. And we know that Jesus's heart is deeply troubled. John 13, 21, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Right. Um, we know elsewhere that Jesus is troubled over these things. He reveals that as Judas Iscariot, he dismisses Judas and says, go and do what you must, but do it quickly. That's in verse 28 there. Excuse me, verse 27 there. And then you have Jesus telling the disciples that he's about to depart from them. He's talking about his coming death. 
Verse 31, he says, when he was gone, talking about Judas, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Verse 33, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. Then he gives them the new command to love one another. But we know that the Lord is facing this penultimate moment. We know that the, 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 the cogs are turning, that everything is in place for everything to happen that Jesus said was going to happen. That he's been telling them about for so long that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tortured and beaten and rejected. And then he's going to be lifted up on a cross and he's going to be killed. He's going uh, to be raised again. But nevertheless, the cup of God's wrath is before him. And he's just revealed just prior to chapter 14 that Peter, the loudest one, right, the one who some would say followed Jesus with reckless abandonment. He's just predicted Peter's betrayal. And yet he has prayed for Peter, that Peter would be restored. Y'all, that's the context of where we come to today. It's that that gives what we'll read in just a moment such a richness for you see, while Jesus offers words of such vast comfort, he has just revealed the agony he will face. While Jesus makes such wonderful, glorious promises, we know that he is deeply troubled and he is struggling over the basis for these promises, namely that he will be the one by God's power for God's glory that will pave the way for these things to be possible, that he's about to comfort them with. You know, this is the absolute pure essence of love. This is love embodied in that Jesus is struggling. We know what's going to happen when he gets to Gethsemane, right? Sweating great drops of blood. He's, he'll be agonizing. He'll ask God if it's possible to let the cup of God's wrath pass, but not my will, thy will be done. Oh, y'all, it is remarkable what we come to today when you understand where it's placed. As Jesus agonizes, he yet comforts others. Let's pray and read of this comfort. Our Father, please be with us now. Guide us in this time that lies ahead, help us to appreciate the richness of what we will read, this passage that is so popular and is used so often. Help us to understand the context that our Lord says these things as he himself agonizes over what he's facing. Give us a greater appreciation for our Lord's sacrifice. And let us believe. Give us faith that we would trust. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Jesus has said all of these things, after he's revealed that Peter's going to betray him, we know that his heart is deeply troubled. And yet in John 14, 1, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I don't have to say anything else on this other than what I've just said in those introductory comments. But the fact that Jesus is not focused on himself, you know, 
I believe, oh goodness, I should have looked it up. It's John Adams. I know it's John Adams. John Adams, uh, after his time as president, ended up being appointed as an ambassador. He was basically shuffled away. Nobody had much of anything to do with him. He was rather offended. He was rather hurt. And he wrote in one of his memoirs that a wounded man loved, or excuse me, a hurt man loves to speak of his wounds. And he was right, wasn't he? When we're going through something, when we're afflicted, our most natural inclination is to focus on our own pain and suffering. So much so that it can surface in a moment. And if it doesn't surface in a moment, people just know, right? And admittedly, y'all, sometimes when we get news, sometimes when we face a situation, we just can't cover it up. Um, I, I myself, I know that that as good as I am at <clears throat> putting on a you know a poker face and and being the jovial one, even sometimes with me the 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 difficulty that I face or if something that has profoundly troubled my heart, I know that it comes out. We, it, we can't help it be that way. We're humans. Jesus was human, fully human, and so we see that his heart was troubled, and yet. Jesus teaches us something about emotions here, right? Emotions, none of us get to pick our emotions, but we do get to choose what we do with them. And so what does Jesus choose to do? Well, Jesus tends to chooses to focus on his disciples. And he chooses, in the midst of this time of great discouragement for him, he chooses to encourage them. Washing their feet was very difficult, I'm sure. But y'all, let me tell you something. When your heart is very troubled, it is incredibly difficult to be an encouragement to others. It really is. In fact, if you want to write a book on this, I'm, I'm thinking of doing a project for this for my doctoral dissertation. But if you want to know what happens a lot of times in ministry, when the pastor becomes extremely discouraged, and when the pastor burns out, it's very difficult for him to be an encouragement to others. Just That's just reality. That's the case. And yet, what do we find from Jesus? We find that he is encouraging others. His heart is troubled, yet he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? He says, trust in God, trust also in me. The King James I like a little bit better. In that, he says, and it's a little bit better translation, he says, you believe in God, Believe also in me. Yet again, Jesus equates himself to God the Father here, right? He says there's no line of distinction between the two. But then he departs from that. So we start off with comfort and exclusivity. Jesus showing the necessity of faith in him and in him alone. Then he continues. He said, in my father's house, this is verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Now, what's Jesus talking about? Quite simply, he's talking about the same thing he's been talking about the whole time, y'all. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Now, it's fascinating here. In the gospel, according to John, we do not see as much of a uh, focus on the kingdom of God. But you want to know what Jesus talked about more than anything else? The number one thing Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God. 
It's the main thrust of all of his parables. It's what he's teaching about. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he goes on to tell the parable. When we study them, we tend to focus on what the parable says, but we skip that first key phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven all the time, and now he's talking about it here. Now, we know something from yesterday, don't we? We read Luke 22 yesterday in the upper room there, and we know that the disciples were arguing just prior to Jesus saying what he's saying here. They were arguing over who would be first when Jesus came into his kingdom. And yet, here in John 14, we find out that there's a different focus that he's presenting to them. So not only is this comfort about the future, but it's also correction to them. They're thinking about his coming kingdom right then, right there, what's going to happen in Israel and so forth. Jesus is talking about the place that he's going to that, remember, he said yesterday, you can't come there yet, but you will. He's talking about glory in heaven, and he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know, it's at this point that Jesus goes on this logical progression. It only makes sense, right? In my father's house are many rooms. Um, in my father's house are many mansions, depending on which, uh, which translation you're using. Doesn't matter. Same concept. Where Jesus is going, that they cannot come yet, but that where he will take them to as a place of glory. And he's not only going there, he's going to prepare a place for them. And so if he prepares a place for them, obviously he's going to come get them. Right? It only makes sense. But it's this logical progression that Jesus uses to comfort his disciples. And by extension, it's this logical progression that ought to be a vast comfort to you and to me. Vast comfort concerning not only ourselves and our eternal destination, but also vast comfort concerning those who have gone on before us. You know, First Thessalonians talks about the fact that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so where is that presence with the Lord? Well, it's in the place that he has prepared. And Jesus makes this great promise. And he doesn't include the idea of going to meet him first, but it's certainly implicit in there, right? That when you die, you will either go to heaven to be with the Lord. Book of Hebrews talks about the church of the firstborn there, and it's fascinating. We, we don't know exactly what the dynamics are, or, or, or excuse me, not the dynamics, the mechanics of this are, but nevertheless, we know that we're not going to be disappointed, right? But, but Jesus makes this logical progression of if you die and you know me, you'll be with me. To the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise, right? So we either have that or we have absence of God in hell. There, there is no in between there. But this ought to provide us with great comfort. Now, this is the interesting thing. As soon as Jesus says this, in verse 4, he says, You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? You know, good old Thomas, right? Same Thomas that a couple of chapters ago when they're getting news about Lazarus being sick and Jesus had just escaped Judea and they wanted to kill him there. And then Jesus says, we're going back. 
Thomas is the one that says after he finds out Lazarus is dead already, he says, well, let's go so we can die with him, right? Thomas is the one, obviously, that will doubt our Lord being raised from the dead. You know, Thomas will be the one that confesses. But as for right now, Thomas has some issues. Jesus says, I'm going to this place to spend, I'm going to prepare a place for you, all these things. And Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know. And what is Jesus's response? Jesus's response is that great verse. That verse that tells us so much about the mechanics, the dynamics, that tells us so much about how Christianity works. Thomas says, we don't know the way to where you're going. Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. And then he throws something else in. He doesn't just say, from now on, you do know him. What he says next is of such vast importance to understanding who Jesus is. And also, it's of such vast importance to do away with these silly notions from Jehovah's Witnesses and from Mormons that Jesus is not God and other groups that deny Jesus' divinity. Jesus says, from now on, this is the end of verse 7, you do know him and have seen him. Y'all, there are two main things that Jesus is doing here. The first is he is comforting his disciples, and by extension, he offers comfort to you and me. And that ultimate comfort is it doesn't matter what's going on. There is nothing wrong that Jesus is not going to make right. You hear me? There is nothing wrong in heaven or in earth and earth especially, there's nothing wrong that Jesus is not going to correct. But the means by which Jesus corrects, the substance of our hope for eternity, for communion with him, is Jesus Christ. And this Jesus is not only the Christ, he is God the Son. And yet again, just as he did at the beginning, you believe in God, believe also in me. So he completes here in verse 7. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Now, the interesting thing is what happens next. We'll pick up here tomorrow because Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. (laughs) Like, Philip, were you listening? You have seen me, so you've seen him. But nevertheless, what we'll come to tomorrow is going to show where the disciples are really at. But y'all, we've kind of been rough on the disciples. Realize they don't have the full testimony or did not at that time have the full testimony of God's word. Even though they've been told their faith had not yet become sight, they didn't know what Jesus was really going to do. They didn't know how everything was going to work out. You see, you and I have this knowledge. His word testifies to it. We have the spirit to indwell us. We have no excuse. The question is, do you believe? 
as you are facing the struggles of life, as difficulties arise, and I am not belittling those in the slightest bit, sometimes life gets so squirrely on you, gets so mixed up and messed up that you don't know up from down. But there is nothing wrong that Jesus won't make right. However, it will only be through faith in Jesus that this is accomplished for you. Do you believe? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? If so, marvelous. Keep on going. That's the message of John 14, 1 through 7 for you. Keep on going. Know that you have placed your faith in the Holy One. But if you haven't, and you want this assurance that everything wrong will be made right, it will only be in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage that is used to point out that there is no other way to you. There is no other truth but Jesus Christ. There is no other life but life in him. And yet this is often denied and rejected. Father, work in our hearts that not only we would have faith, but that we would share that faith with others so that they would see, see Christ and see you. And in seeing you, they would believe. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you all for being a part of this time, Lord willing. We will be back tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. I see that, uh-oh, what happened to my screen here? Talking about squirrely. There we go. There's Alice. Good morning. And then there's Becky and Monica. Yes, indeed. We trust in God whose kingdom cannot be shaken no matter what. Absolutely. And then there's Becky and there's Elizabeth. Again, thank you all for being here. Lord willing, we'll see you tomorrow morning at 7. Until then, have a great Wednesday.